welcome to the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor of the Congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 16 and is from the service for October 1st, 2023. The scripture lessons are Exodus 17, 1 through 7 and Matthew 21, 23 through 32. The sermon is entitled Lip Service. We hope you enjoy the episode. So our scripture lesson for tonight uh, comes from uh, Exodus chapter 17 and from um, and from Matthew's gospel. And oh, I forgot to spotlight this. Um, okay, there we go. <clears throat> Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community broke camp and set out from the Sin Desert to continue their journey as the Lord commanded. They set up their camp at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people argued with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why are you arguing with me? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people were very thirsty for water there, and they complained to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with this people? They're getting ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of Israel's elders with you. Take in your hand the shepherd's rod that you used to strike the Nile River and go. I'll be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Hit the rock. Water will come out of it and the people will be able to drink. Moses did so while Israel's elders watched. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites argued with and tested the Lord, asking, is the Lord really with us or not? A lesson from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I have a question for you. If you tell me the answer, I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Where did John get his authority to baptize? Did he get it from heaven or from humans? They argued among themselves, if we say from heaven... He'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say from humans because we're afraid of the crowd, since everyone thinks John was a prophet. Then they replied, we don't know. Jesus also said to them, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. Now he came to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. No. I don't want to, he replied, but later he changed his mind and went. The father said the same thing to the other son, who replied, yes, sir, but he did not go. 
which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first one. Jesus said to them, I assure you that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you on the righteous road and you didn't believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Yet even after you saw this, you didn't change your hearts and lives and you didn't believe him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So these are two stories that might not appear on their face to be related, right? I mean, it's a story in a way of the uh, of the well, not in a way. It's a story of the wild of the wilderness experience of the Israelites. They have come through the Red Sea. They have not yet received the law at Sinai, and so they are fresh from having you know, experienced God's delivering power, and now they're out in the wilderness, and they start to complain. I will uh, give you a little inside baseball on this. When we learn this uh, passage in seminary, it's always with the lesson that our congregations will murmur uh, against us, is that it's a, it's a lesson for pastors. Get ready. Your people are going to do this, too. And so there's something about that and the dynamic of the people complaining to Moses and Moses going to God and God saying, okay, fine, here's what I'll do. They'll give you water, right? But there's something else at work. And we talked about this last week. We talked about this remembering what the Lord has done, right? This idea that somehow uh, the people forgot really quickly what God had done for them in the in the Exodus. And we looked at the New Testament parable of the unforgiving servant, the one who had just been pardoned from 10,000 talents of debt and then held over uh, one of his fellow servants a hundred denarius debt. And so we reflected on the fact that both of these groups had experienced God's love and grace and failed to remember it by reenacting it in their lives. And here we're seeing a related phenomenon because here we have the experience of people who are kind of saying the right things, but are not quite following through on doing something about it. That is, we, in the New Testament story, Jesus is confronted with a question about his own authority. And this question becomes folded together with a parable. There are scholars who think that this parable originally had nothing to do with this question and that Matthew just sort of inserts it into the story. There are others who think that it's told specifically in response to this question. But here, the, the religious leadership want to know where does Jesus get off doing all the stuff that he's doing? What, what makes him think he can do this? Now, in, in good rabbinical fashion, Jesus responds to a question with another question, right? Um, they ask him this question. He says, tell you what, I'll ask you a question. And if you can answer that correctly, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he asks them a question about John the Baptist. And he says, was John's authority 
from heaven or from people? That is, did God send him or did people merely just proclaim him as a prophet? Of course, they gather together and they don't know what to answer because they're, they're stuck. If they answer, well, if God sent him, then he'll say, why didn't you listen to him? Right? He would out them as hypocrites for having said one thing and done another. But then they say, but if we say from humans, then the crowd will be angry with us because they believe he's a prophet. Right. So they are really focused on saying the right thing. Right? They want to. So because they can't figure out what that is, they just punt and say, we don't know. OK. And then, of course, Jesus is then able to fall back and say, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. If you don't know the answer to that one, there's no reason I should tell you the answer to your question. And then there's a very sudden transition to this parable of the man with the two sons. And this is one of the reasons why some scholars think this is inserted is that it feels a little awkward suddenly. And they, they even debate, like, is he still talking to them? <laughs> is he still talking now? Is he talking to the disciples or some other group? Right. But like, we'll take this together as one unit. It seems to be presented that way. And so the story that he tells is still about them, even though it feels like a very different story. Because he tells the story of two sons, both asked to do something by their father. One says yes and doesn't do it. The other says no, but then does it. And he points out, it's the one who did it, not the one who said they would, who is the one who has done their, his father's will. And then pivots and says, I'm telling you, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Because what he's saying in effect is whatever they might profess, whatever they might say, whatever name they might claim for themselves, they're doing the right thing. They listened to John. You didn't. So you can stand up here with all your piety and all your holiness and all your sanctimony, and you can seek to ask me, who do I think I am doing this work, when you didn't even do the one thing that even the prostitutes and the tax collectors are doing. They're ahead of you. Now, this is always framed in a, in a couple of ways in Matthew's gospel. This is a way that Matthew builds upon Mark and the idea that in the kingdom of heaven, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That there's sort of an inversion where all the people on the top will be on the bottom and all the people on the bottom will be on the top. And it's hard to imagine a category of person more reviled than tax collectors and prostitutes. And I don't mean simply because of the shame that is always directed at sex workers and has been from day one, but because prostitution carries with it the tinge of idolatry. And in fact, whenever we look at the Hebrew Bible, at the works of the prophets, whenever the prophets are talking about prostitution or fornication or other things like that, 
the solid good money is that they're not actually talking about anything having to do with sex. They're talking about idolatry, that they use the image of a prostitute as one who has sold themselves for the service of another and are saying, in effect, that's what Israel has done. Israel has not been faithful. Israel is selling itself to these other deities. And so this image of prostitution it is less to do about sexual morality than it is to do about idolatry. And so it's one of those really on the out professions because it evokes the sense of pagan worship, idolatry, infidelity, all the things that a good faithful Jew is not supposed to do. And tax collectors, of course, because they are skimming off the top, I mean, that's how they were paid, to be honest, they were expected to, and because they were, in effect, Quislings for the Roman Empire, helping the Romans to oppress the Jewish people, were also looked down on very strongly. And so when Jesus says, those groups are ahead of you, he is making it clear it's more than what we say. It's more than what we might profess. Elsewhere in the gospel, he says even, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my father, which is so interesting because he's in effect saying, I don't care how many times you read the Apostles' Creed in church. I don't care whether you have all the right you know, emojis, Christian emojis by your Twitter handle. I don't care how much you publicly profess yourself to be a person of faith. Are you doing the things you're supposed to do? Are you listening to the works of the prophets? Are you listening to John? Are you listening to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, when they talk about justice for the poor, talk about righteousness, when they talk about equity in our living? Are you listening to them? Are you doing what they're telling you to do? Which is what God is telling you to do. If not, then none of that matters. In fact, some of the people who aren't saying all those prayers, who aren't putting those emojis in their Twitter handles, are in line ahead of you because they are doing that. Because they're listening and they're responding. We've talked about this before. And I, last year, I talked about public Christians, sort of per, Christianity as sort of performance art, as a way of declaring a status in society at large without having to actually do discipleship. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. See, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 1930s. And he saw the rising corruption of the Christian church in Germany, a church that was slowly starting to identify Christian faith with German nationalism, that was slowly identifying its particular national political agendas with that of the gospel. He saw that it was being corrupted into supporting the Nazi party in lifting up Adolf Hitler as a messianic figure chosen by God to deliver 
Germany from its humiliation after World War II. Bonhoeffer saw all this and saw that it was a fundamental corruption of the faith he had. There was a Swiss theologian named uh, Karl Barth. He articulated a theology that excluded nationalism and particularism from the gospel. And this movement called the confessing movement was in opposition to the Nazification and the nationalization of the German Protestant churches. Now, an interesting thing though, was that when things started to get really bad in Germany, Bonhoeffer was in New York. He was in Harlem learning about the African-American tradition, learning about theologies of resistance and liberation and really coming to understand that struggle. But he could have stayed in New York. He could have lived out the rest of his life as visiting faculty at Columbia, teaching theology and saying what a shame it is going on over there. But he understood that even though his salvation had been freely given, it didn't come without a cost. The grace wasn't cheap, even if it was freely given. It cost Jesus everything. And in Bonhoeffer's mind, that's the cost of discipleship. What we receive freely, we nevertheless give value to by making it count, making it matter. And so he went back to Germany. He went back to face sure persecution. And in fact, he came to be so strongly committed to the idea that the Nazis were an evil who needed to be stopped. This corruption, this nationalism that had infected German Protestantism was so evil that he became a courier in the bomb plot to kill Hitler that Hitler's generals had started. He wound up in, in Dachau because of this, or Birkenau. He wound up in a concentration camp and he was executed nine days before the war ended. That's the cost of discipleship. That is doing more than saying all the right things. That's more than paying lip service to the gospel. That's more than being a public, performative Christian. That's understanding that it's about the doing. It's about the witnessing. It's about living out that life of commitment to justice, to peace, to righteousness. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Bonhoeffer. It wasn't easy for the 12. It's not easy for us. But we are reminded of the two sons. It's the one who does it, not the one who gets credit for saying that he ought to. That's the one. That's the one who does the will of his father. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll join us again soon.